Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another week of nursing and true crime. We talk a little bit about everything on this podcast. We kind of use stories from the news, I guess, to help facilitate some conversation that's sort of centered around nursing and, and healthcare and other social issues. And speaking of that, my co-host for this week, my guest host is Brittany Daniels, who is a nurse and also an author and advocate, and I'm so excited to have you on. Welcome, Brittany. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to have you. So Brittany is, as I said, she's an author. Brittany, can you tell them the name of your book? Yes. My book is titled Journal of a Black Queer Nurse. And so she reached out to me and told me about her book, and she sent us a copy, and we were able to go through and read it, and uh, it's just, it's fabulous. It's so eye-opening. It's very easy to read, very, very easy to read, very interesting. So so excited to have her on. We're going to feature her as the good nurse when we get to the good nurse segment. We have a very, uh, I'm going to just have to give major trigger warning. This story has kind of been in my back pocket for a while just because of, man, the details are just so gruesome. We have done our best in the show notes to kind of keep it somewhat PG to PG 13 ish. It's just, this story is difficult, but needs to be told for sure. But I just want to give you a little trigger warning. It's a little, it's very gruesome. And um, and just extremely sad as well. So just so, just so you know that. So before we get started though, into this bad nurse story, Brittany, tell, can you just explain, and of course we're going to talk about it when we get into the good nurse segment, just very briefly, what is your book about? Definitely. So the idea behind my book is to give, and, and I love that you said it was an easy read because it is. And I, I, that was very intentional. You know, in nursing school, they teach us that the average reading level of our patient population is eighth grade. And so I wanted to make sure that this book was digestible, that anyone could read it and that I'm not using and, you know, not using huge medical terminology and things like that. And so I promise you that this book is incredibly digestible. It is an easy read, but the idea behind it was to give readers an opportunity to see what happens in the hospital and in the medical care setting through my lens, through the lens of a black person, a queer person, a person covered in tattoos, right? And these, you know, the the person that we the people that we are changes the way that we interact with others. It changes the way we are perceived. And so I wanted to give people the opportunity to know what it looks like to have my eyes and to walk through healthcare over 
a five-year period across state lines. Well, I'm really excited to get to talk about that and talk about you and kind of let everybody get a little window into who you are and into the book. And so we're going to get to do that when we get to the good nurse segment. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house, so it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. Are you looking to take your career to the next level? Consider enrolling in the Doctor of Nursing Practice Program at UC Irvine. The program offers a post-master's track for MSN-prepared nurses and a family nurse practitioner track for those with at least a BSN. Their program, of course, is fully accredited, and their graduates are highly sought after by healthcare organizations across the country. If you're ready to take the next step in your nursing career, I encourage you to explore UCI Irvine's DNP program today. Visit nursing.uci.edu to learn more, and of course, we'll put a link on our website and you can access it at goodnursebadnurse.com. This is the story of Richard W. Rogers Jr. He was a nurse in New York City. He was born in 1950 and was the eldest of five children. He grew up in Plymouth, Massachusetts before his family relocated to Florida in the early 1960s. He moved to New York City after graduating college and attended nursing school in the late 70s. So this is uh, this happened back in the day. This is like, what, 40 years old. I mean, this story goes way, way, way back. He landed a position at Mount Sinai Medical Center after obtaining his nursing license. Over a period of 22 years, Rogers held various positions in the hospital from pediatrics to surgery. He had purchased a co-op on Staten Island where his neighbors considered him to be very helpful and thoughtful. Rogers checked all the boxes for being average and ordinary. He owned a home, he had a stable career, was goal-oriented with a healthy social life. Even his appearance was described as average. There were no visible signs of the malevolent nature the nurse was harboring inside him. And boy, was it ever, Brittany. This is, My goodness. Mm-hmm. Hearing you read this so, is just, mm-hmm. yeah. I know. It is so... I don't know. We're going we're gonna to delve into it here. So in the summer of 1988... Mark Rogers' first encounter with law enforcement happened. A 47-year-old Manhattan man told the New York Police Department that he had been drugged, bound, and sexually assaulted. He informed the police that he had awakened in Rogers' apartment, where Roger, Rogers apparently beat him. Despite the allegations, however, Rogers was acquitted on, in a non-jury trial that December. This is so disturbing. I... See, I, I do a lot of these stories, um, and a lot of them, unfortunately, are crimes against women. That a lot of true crime, it is tr- crimes against women, many, many times committed by men. And so many times, I will in the story, whatever horrible thing happened to the woman, there, the person who did it had a pattern. There was a pattern. There was they had done something horrible sometimes equally as horrible, sometimes maybe not so bad, but bad enough that they shouldn't have been out on the streets. And it's so frustrating. And that's what we are seeing here. I, 
I can't tell you how frustrating it is to know that he had done something like this and really should not have been out of prison. I it's mean, inc- I don't it's think it's maddening, right? Mm-hmm. It's maddening to know that someone, you know, you have a live human being telling you, this is what happened to me. This is where it happened to me. This is who did it, <laughs> right? And he's still acquitted. How? It's so frustrating. So on May 3rd, 1991, Peter Anderson, a 54-year-old investment banker, traveled from Philadelphia to Manhattan to attend a political fundraiser. Anderson was a father of two and had recently separated from his wife due to his sexuality. Upon the conclusion of the fundraiser, Anderson had a few drinks at the townhouse bar on East 58th Street, an upscale restaurant known for having a gay male clientele. It was reported that he decided to go to Penn Station instead of staying overnight at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. So Anderson was visibly drunk. He was escorted out to Lexington Avenue to wait for a cab, but no one ever saw him get into a cab. Days later, his body parts were found. I told you guys this is rough. His body parts were found wrapped in garbage bags and left in trash cans at two rest stops in the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Court documents indicated that his body exhibited, quote, gaping wounds to his chest. I mean, it's frustrating, you know, doing these stories and just hearing the complete disregard for human life, the how people literally are, they view others as disposable. To just not even give them a proper burial, not even to care whether family members might be wondering where they are, just no regard for others whatsoever. It's all about them. It's all about whatever they are trying to satisfy, trying to satisfy within themselves. It's, it always just blows my mind. Yeah. And, and this, you know, Peter Anderson's story is, is so sad to me because, you know, like they said, he had recently, you know, become separated from his wife. So he had finally started to live his truth, right? He knew he was attracted to men. He wanted to explore that. And he's 54 years old, right? So he's already, you know, missed out on this opportunity for the first half of his life. And now here he is trying to explore that and have fun. And his life was stolen from him. Yeah. It's just, it's horrible. And then in early July, 1992, so this is what a year later, 57-year-old computer sales representative Thomas Mulcahy was in New York City for business. Mulcahy was a father of four from Massachusetts who was married um, and his marriage was struggling due to his excessive drinking and affairs with men. He frequently traveled to New York for business and he had decided to stay another night in the city after his business presentation had wrapped up. He had gone to the townhouse bar, so same bar, around 10.30 that evening and had been introduced to an average-looking man, as we said, about 5 foot 10 with brown hair. When Mulcahy failed to return home the following evening, his wife contacted the hotel where her husband was known to have been staying during his trip. Hotel staff searched his room at her insistence that something was definitely wrong. His belongings were found inside the hotel room, but he was unaccounted for. That was until his remains were found days later in multiple garbage bags at two remote rest stops in New Jersey. So a medical examiner concluded that his cause of death was stab wounds of the chest, abdomen, and 
penetrating the heart, lung, mesentery, and stomach with internal hemorrhage. The medical examiner also noted that the dismemberment occurred post-mortem and that ligature marks on his wrist suggested that he was bound at some point prior to his death. There were no signs of sexual assault or activity, but I feel like by this time, if he really, if he'd been dismembered and I, I don't know that that would, to me, I'm not sure that would be, that you could really tell that. I don't know. seems like maybe. Yeah. And this is, you know, we're obviously noticing a pattern, right? And so I'm, I'm wondering as I'm learning about these cases, you know, these, these folks are already deceased, right? When when Roberts is, is deciding to, you know, or Rogers, I'm sorry, is deciding to dismember them, and so what's you know what's going on in the head of someone who has already murdered someone? They're already gone, and then you decide to dismember them. Yeah, you just have to wonder: is there you know some kind of psychological thing going on there with him? And and it, it could be as simple as that was his way of getting the body out of his apartment without being caught, but, but still in such a gruesome, gruesome way. So it's quiet for nearly a year and investigators were working to solve the murders, but they would resume. These murders would resume the following summer on May the 6th in 1993, a 44 year old sex worker, Anthony Marrero went to Greenwich village to meet an unidentified client. He was intoxicated with marijuana and alcohol and was seen near the Port Authority bus terminal. Approximately five days later, a civilian found Marrero's remains in six trash bags along a dirt road in Manchester Township. Investigators noted that it appeared that animals had opened one of the bags. So medical examiners ruled that the cause of death was multiple stab wounds to the back and at least one to the front. Again, the dismemberment was determined to have been, occurred post-mortem. There were no signs of sexual assault or activity. Another victim, and these are all gay men. So it does appear as though there's there's some targeting going on here, clearly. Certainly. And, you know, Marrero's story was so frustrating for me because, you know, during this time, it was difficult for the LGBTQ plus community to find work, right? And that resulted in a lot of people turning to sex work to make money, to survive. And he couldn't do that without his life being, again, yeah. stolen from him. Right. Yeah. It's, it, it's in, if there's someone out there who wishes to target the someone in the gay community, then, you know, if they reach out to someone like that, it's going to be, um, I would imagine in this day and age, it's a little, you know, back then they didn't have as much of a digital footprint, you know? So I would think it would be easier to get away with something like this. Nowadays, I think it would be a whole lot more difficult to get away. There's literally CCTV everywhere. Their phones, everything, your car, everything is computerized and is tracking everything all the time. Everything you do, whether you realize it or not, it is. And so it is a whole lot more difficult. This, that's exactly how they caught the the man who has, well, allegedly broke into that sorority house and killed those 
college students in Idaho. Was it Idaho? I think so. Or Utah or something. And that's how they caught him was the digital. You know, they all they had was CCTV footage of a white car of a certain size. I don't think they knew exactly what type it was that would that just happened to be it, you know, that wee hours of the morning, two, three o'clock in the morning, one of the only vehicles on the road anywhere near that house. And they somehow were able to track it all the way down to him and arrest him. Craziness. So yeah, I, I think that it is a lot harder to get away with anything like this. But back then, you know, reaching out to somebody who is in this, you know, Line, of, line work. of work, and that's the thing. Sex, sex worker safety. The advocacy has right. It's it's increased so much over the last you know two decades. We really have, you know, we see lawmakers really, you know, putting forth the effort to make sure that se- sex workers are safe, and they should be. Well, and I think that not just gay men, but sex workers in general at for for a long time we're just kind of you think about Jack the Ripper i think they were looked at as as disposable i mean i, I think that they were looked at like well i don't do that i don't participate in mm-hmm. that uh, so i'm not really somebody that that could happen to therefore i'm not as bothered by it i'm not as worried about it well they you know were participating in behavior that was illegal or so it's like people have a way of categorizing people into, you know, away from themselves, I think, and justifying just ambivalence. And, you know, that's, that's unfortunately what we do in society. And that's, yeah, when you're a gay, uh, you know, male prostitute, you've got so many, you got so many negatives going against you there. It's, it's going to be hard to get somebody to really care enough to, figure something out. Now they were, the law enforcement, they were trying. I just don't know, you know, it was, like I said, it was back in the day. So definitely, it, t- it took them, all, it took a long, a long time, way too long, just way, way, way too long. So Michael Sakara was a 56 year old who worked as a typesetter for the New York Law Journal and lived in Manhattan. On the night of July 29th in 1993, He was seen drinking at a bar in Greenwich Village with a man he introduced his friend to as a nurse from the nearby St. Vincent's Hospital. He was seen leaving the bar and getting into a car with the man. Days later, his body parts were found carefully packed into trash bags picked up from a rest stop in Rockland County, New York. So now we're making some, some headway. Because somehow he's made a huge misstep. Yes. So I can't remember the name of the group, but there was a group of LGBTQ plus community outreach folks who they put out an an announcement and they said, hey, if you are gay and you are going to the bar, if you plan on going home with anyone, take that person and introduce them to your friends. And that's how he ended up being introduced by Michael. Oh, wow. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. So he kind of, he followed that advice, but Richard Rogers wasn't aware 
Right. And so he didn't understand what that meant. He didn't understand that he was being he's go, he was going to be implicated because he was literally planting evidence. Yes. And wow. And I'm sure that Marrero was thinking that was going to keep him safe. You know, when I met my husband almost 30 years ago, mm-hmm. we met in traffic. <laughs> and that's where we met. We were in Nashville, met in traffic. Um, and so people are like, what? What the heck? You didn't even know him. I'm like, I know, I I know. He followed he followed me into my apartment complex. You would think that I would have been scared to death, but he was kind of adorable. So I don't know. I I probably it's a wonder I wasn't murdered. You know, but uh, thank goodness he was super sweet. But I did tell everybody that I worked with who he was, where he worked. I called his work to verify. So there are things you can do. But if the person doesn't know you're doing it, it may help them solve your murder, but it may not help keep, you know, keep you from being murdered. So you might have to be a little more obvious that, hey, everybody knows, everybody knows who I'm with. They know what car you drive. They know, you know, I'm just having ways of dropping those hints, I guess. Just let that without maybe putting a huge damper on your date. <laughs> but, yeah, definitely. By the way. Definitely. <laughs> don't kill me because like, my friends know who you are right and it's like i share i share my location with my friends you know my close friends and family and if anything ever happens to me check my location <laughs> and so yeah. michael was doing that michael was saying mm-hmm. all right my friends know who you are they know your name they know you're a nurse and so mm-hmm. when michael comes up missing his friends are like ring 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 police there was a nurse his name is this you know and so I'm thinking, how how conceited is Richard to sit there and be like, yeah, that's me. Hi, nice to meet you all. I'm going to go kill Michael now, right? Sometimes you see in these cases where people are serial killers, they they, get, they do get arrogant. They do start to think, you know, maybe they start out being super, super careful and keep, you know, clean everything up and they have just the right plan, they think, you know, to get away with it. But then they get away with it so many times that they mm-hmm. start to get too comfortable. And clearly, he had done that because that was a huge misstep for him. You know, a male nurse, okay, th- even today, there's not a, a huge percentage of nurses that are men, really. Right. I mean, they're it's it's pretty low. We looked this up, my husband and I looked it up, and it was it was actually lower than I thought. I want to say it was 15%. Is that Does that sound right? It does. It's about 15%. It is not, and and I would say in rural areas, it's even like it, it's, there are more men working in the larger hospitals as nurses um, right. in the bigger cities. But in some of the rural areas, very rare to see men working as nurses. I'm so happy to see more and more men going into the field and it getting more balanced. Hopefully that will help our, our pay <laughs> structure. Right. Oh my God. Because I know they're <laughs> Unfortunately, female-dominated professions tend to not fare very well on the pay scale. But because you know, we don't have to—we're not the breadwinners of the family. We don't have to provide. We're not. We stay, in, we stay in the kitchen, you know. <laughs> we just stay in the kitchen and occasionally go pick up a couple of shifts just to give us something to do. Socialize with the girls. <laughs> we don't need the money. We're just doing it, you know. I mean, you know, these hospitals—they don't want nurses that are out for the money. Okay, just forget it. Don't even need not apply if you just come in here for a paycheck. Yes. Unless you're coming here as you know, with your heart on your sleeve, ready to work your tail off and not care how much you're making, then just stay away. 
You'll look for something else. Oh my God, yes. Right. We all know that when we're taking any medication or supplement, dosage matters, and it's important to take enough to get the desired result. For example, only taking a 10 milligram Tylenol might not help with your headache. Well, the same is true for CBD. If you try a low dose CBD product, you may not feel anything, but it's not the CBD's fault. The dosage is the problem. This is why CBD Stat only makes high dose CBD products that actually work. And now their products are getting even stronger. CBD Stat is happy to announce that they're launching a new extra strength version of its highly popular topical products that have 7,500 milligrams of CBD. This new strength will by far maintain CBD Stat's status as the most powerful CBD product line on the market. More CBD means it's more effective in helping everyone tackle daily aches and pains. CBD Stat sent me a box of these new products and I already knew it was going to work because I've been using it for my neck pain and foot pain, but I can definitely tell the difference in this new strength and I'm really excited to get to tell you guys about it. And on top of these new higher strength products, they're also dropping prices across the board on all their products to make CBD Stat not only the most effective on the market, but also the most affordable. And don't forget, all you healthcare workers out there, get a special additional discount to help keep you strong. Just head to cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare and find your new secret weapon. That's cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare. The four cases shared both murder and disposal uh, disposal methods and the victims fit the same profile, middle-aged gay men. A joint task force was formed that included representatives from the Ocean County's Prosecutor's Office, the New Jersey State Police, the Rockland County District Attorney's Office, the New York State Police, and the Pennsylvania State Police. Now, I think they're getting serious. I think they actually are acting like they want to catch this person. Saw blades and surgical gloves found with Mulcahy's remains were traced to stores on Staten Island and trash bags used to dispose of Marrero also traced back to those stores. After that, however, the tracks kind of ran cold and it would remain that way until the end of the decade. So still, regardless of what seems to be so much evidence. So Margaret Mulcahy, the widow of Thomas Mulcahy, remained dedicated to finding her husband's murderer. Kudos to her, you know, after um, the infidelity and what... The betrayal, you know, it's, it, it, you can understand it just from what he went through. And it's, it's so difficult, you know, people trying to kind of deny who they are, but still being betrayed like that for her to not only just, just be like at peace with it, but actually dedicated to finding the murderer, his murderer. In 1999, she had contacted the New Jersey state police for an update on the case. In the, ten, in the years since then, there had been significant advances in forensic technology and the advance um, and the advent of the internet had made it easier than ever for police departments around the country to share information. So following her inquiry, evidence from the Anderson, Mulcahy, and Marrero murders was sent to the Toronto Police Department, who were using cutting-edge technology, which lifted multiple matching fingerprints off the garbage bags in the crime scene. Isn't it interesting that it ends up being fingerprints because you would think it would be DNA at this time. You know, it's like, like fingerprints that's been around for a hundred years. What, what are, what are we doing here? And I understand it was a new way, maybe a new way of lifting them off of different kind of um, material, I guess. Right. But still, come on. 
Exactly. <laughs> and, and they had his fingerprints and, for years. They used his yes. old fingerprints from one of the old crimes to compare them. So Yeah. I know. Uh, it's just oh, it's so, so it's hard to believe. In May 2001, New Jersey State Police finally got the break they were looking for. Police in Maine advised that they had a match to the prints from a murder case in the early 1970s. So, in 1973, Long before Richard Rogers decided to move to New York, he attended the University of Maine. He claimed to have found his roommate. Okay, we're going all the way back now, all the way back to way before any of this stuff happened. He claimed he found his roommate, 22-year-old Frederick Spencer, rummaging through his possessions. Rogers stated that the situation quickly escalated and Spencer attacked him with a hammer. During the scuffle, Rogers was able to disarm Spencer and gain access to the hammer. He attested that he was acting in self-defense when he struck Spencer eight times in the head. Rogers abandoned the body on the side of the road in a wooded area. The self-defense stance was enough to acquit him of the charges. That is the biggest joke. And they couldn't use this as as a... I guess I can't really use this as like a prior bad act. They're not really supposed to do that. I don't get it. I don't understand that at all. For that, you know, that we talked, that very first thing we talked about, you know, from the beginning, the the guy who said that he had attacked him and beat him up, you couldn't exactly. look at, but, oh, I don't know. Right. And so we're talking back, all the way back to, to the 70s, right? He, he was committing crimes through the, right, the late 80s, right? early 90s and early 90s and so we're we're backing up to 1973 when you quote in self defense hit someone multiple times with a hammer that is not self defense and then you dismembered him right or you threw him i don't know if he dismembered him but he threw him on the side Abandoned of the road him on the side of the right. road yeah i mean was that self-defense too? Were you scared he was going to come back? You know, and was, did Fred ever get justice for this? Right. I don't think that Fred ever received justice for this. No, they acquitted him of the charges. How? How do you acquit someone of of charges of, even if you you were acting in self-defense, you don't have to hit someone eight times. And then once you realize they're dead, you certainly don't have to move their body and throw them <laughs> as if they're garbage on the side of the road. And how in the world they would not have at least charged him and convicted him of uh, what t- tampering with evidence and all right. all the things that go along with um, a corpse. The, the uh, things right, post mortem. Yeah, like all, right. And this is the same. You know, I what I was telling you earlier is this is around the same period of time where you know they were enforcing the war on drugs, and so. Poor communities and black and brown communities were being arrested, convicted at really, really high rates. And I mean, we're talking decade long, you know, prison sentences for drugs. And this man is acquitted after killing someone and throwing him on the side of the road. I just can't fathom. Yes. And that whole uh, war on drugs thing that happened, you know, is was a huge contribution to our problem of over prisons being overcrowded. I mean, there are so many people in prison to, di- to this day who yes. should not be there. They just shouldn't be there. So many people. Sometimes it's girlfriends mm-hmm. uh, who ha- happen to answer the phone 
And they had no idea what they were even saying, but, oh, no, you, you're there, you're part of it. Yeah, it's, it's sad (sighs) what happened with all of that and continues to happen, actually. You know, think about all the people who are actually in prison for drug charges related to drugs that are now legal in those states. How is that possible? Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. But here goes, here goes Rogers walking around after Mm -hmm. beating someone upside the head with a hammer. He's just, you know, he's just And then, yeah, and then also a non-jury trial. A judge obviously found him not guilty. So the beating, not killing, but who knows how bad it was of the other guy. So who knows how in the world people are able to get away with what I can't, I can't get away with anything. I mean, nothing. I, I would... I I deliberately like I have to drive five under. I just I'm I feel like if I go f- one mile an hour with the speed limit, there will be a police officer that will all of a sudden woo. <laughs> That's how right. it feels to me. Yeah. So how in the world people get away with this stuff? Now I will say it was pretty clever what the police did to capture him. This is pretty yes. Cool. Yeah, very clever. On May the 28th in 2001, police told Rogers that he was the victim of credit card fraud and had him come to the station for questioning. The detectives described him as very polite at the time, very cooperative. Police soon dropped the ruse and advised Rogers that they were investigating the murders of four gay or bisexual men in the early 1990s. Rogers was compliant with the questioning until he found out that police had linked him to all four murders. He requested counsel and was taken into custody. He was subsequently held on a million dollar bail. In late 2005, Rogers went on trial in New Jersey for the murders of Thomas Mulcahy and Anthony Marrero. On November 10th, he was found guilty of both murders, as well as two counts of hindering his own apprehension, and was sentenced in February to 30 years to life on each murder charge, with additional two and a half years for each hindering apprehension charge. All four sentences must be served consecutively, adding up to at least 65 years behind bars. He was 68 at the time of conviction. I think if you do the math, we all know that this is not, he's he never going to have be able to, no, he's not going to ever do this to he's anybody not walking else out. again. No. Yeah. Nope. So in 2008, his legal counsel filed an appeal and requested that the conviction be overturned. They cited that the admission of evidence in the trial was a violation of Roger's rights that he was denied a fair trial. The appellate court upheld the conviction. It is reported that he enjoys, that's just is the weirdest bit of information. He enjoys roast beef from the prison's kitchen and likes to watch the news. And he frequently writes letters and maintains his innocence. That is the story of Richard Rogers. Oh my goodness. So I think there, you know, the fact that he is not, we were talking about this before, the fact that he will not admit that he did any of this, he he completely denies it. You, w- there's no real, there's no explanation. You know, you right. kind of just have to speculate as to yeah. what was going on in his mind when he was doing this. Um, and I also wonder, are there people out there that he murdered that we don't even know about? Don't you think? I'm, I'm sure of it. I'm mm-hmm. sure of it. Because the population of people that he was targeting, especially sex workers, unfortunately, a lot of times they are estranged from their family. So should they go missing, there may not be anyone. It's sad, so sad to think that there may not be anyone to 
report them missing. Mm -hmm. Or if they do report, you know, maybe you have a family member who is going, I have not seen my son, you know, and he's not contacted me in two weeks or, Mm -hmm. or just a friend, maybe Mm -hmm. another sex worker who who knows that he always comes here. But when you try to report to the police, they're like, no, no. With their lifestyle, yeah, yeah. they could just have gone somewhere else. And yeah. they, they probably ran off. They probably take relocated. Mm-hmm. And, right. and the thing is, is the reason you, what you said was correct. A lot of sex workers during this time were estranged from their families. And the reason being is that their families were not supportive or willing to embrace their queerness. And so they left, right? They they left and they were like, okay, I'll go make a life for myself somewhere else since my family won't let me be who I am. And then here we are, you know, they're out alone trying to build what community they can and everyone is just trying to survive. Absolutely. You know, I, I would just like to say and kind of address a couple of things. I I think that I know, okay, obviously with the laws that we still have in this country and all of the things that go on, I know that there are a lot of people who have lots of different opinions all over the spectrum on, on this. I always want to respect people's opinions. I, my opinions change over the years of things. I, there are things that, uh, that I, ways that I believed and things that I thought 20 years ago that I can't even fathom who that person was. Like it was me. But I've grown so much and learned so much about lots of different things that I don't think that way anymore. But I can definitely look look back on myself and I know I was I know I was genuine and I know I was well meaning. I know my intentions and I know I loved people. I never ever would have harbor hate in my, you know, a heart against any person for any reason, really. Even people who do horrible, atrocious things, I don't hate them. I hate what they did. I hate I hate whatever that is inside of them, but not the person. And I'm the kind of person that wants to kind of like try to figure out what, you know, why would someone, why would someone target people like this? Why would you want to, why would that be your release? Why is that your therapy or whatever it is? Why is that enjoyable to you to inflict pain on someone else? Mm -hmm. You know, what happened there? And one of the things that I've heard people say over the years when it comes to people who are homosexual is that, that there's mental illness involved. Oh, that's a, it's a mental illness. And I think that's just something that people say to try to figure out, you know, why, where does this come from? And I just want to say to, you know, use this opportunity to kind of say something that I feel like I've learned over the years. I, and I, and I have to be careful because I don't want to um, talk about people in my in my life. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I'm connected with many different people who, who are gay, but I don't feel like it's appropriate for me to say it on here because I don't, I don't have permission. Um, but I will say that it's changed my perspective over the years. And I've learned a lot about loving people and just learning, learning about things. And if one of the th- reasons that just hear me out on this, okay. If one of the reasons that you believe that homosexuality is wrong or some way how you justify it in your head is that it is because of mental illness and that you see a pattern of that. And that's what people have said so many times that people who are homosexual have have a mental health problems. Number one, I'm not sure I know anyone <laughs> that does. I mean, I have mental health problems. I, I 
that that's there's such a spectrum on that that I I don't even think that should matter. But number two, one thing that I know for sure is when a child starts having the realization, kind of figuring out who they are, and they they kind of start feeling different. They feel different, and they know they're different. They look at, at what how other kids are acting, and they know that they are different, and they're feeling that. And then they hear, they hear adults and they hear other children saying things derogatory about people who are gay, using the word gay as an insult and other words that I'm not even going to say. If queer people want to use those words as insults, that is their prerogative against each other. I hear that all the time. I, I don't feel, I don't like it either. I'm just like, you're just perpetuating <laughs> it, but I, that's, I'm just saying, I, I just, to me, you're teaching people that, and, and, and there's people listening. There are people listening all around you. Kids are yes. there and they're figuring out who they are and they know, that, you know, in their, in their heart, you know, they know they're 12 or 13, they know who they are, but they haven't said it out loud. Maybe they mm -hmm. haven't even acknowledged it, mm -hmm. but then they, they see people, they see, hear people using these words and making fun of people. And how damaging is that? Because you're, you're like, that's who I am. I'm this person they're making fun of. Exactly. How, how do you come to terms with that? Of course, it is going to create problems. You're going to have emotional problems. You're going to have anxiety, depression, so many things. It's going to be so hard. And not everyone does. I have, there are plenty of, of gay people who are absolutely the most resilient, the strongest people I've ever met in my life. But I would say that growing up that way, it's going to be very difficult to not have, you know, those things to deal with. But so I just want to kind of offer that to people who, who kind of, I don't know, I just hear that way too much. And that's all, that's, that's always my observation and something that I, I try to, to say pe to people as much as possible. Yeah, I, I appreciate, I really appreciate you saying that. And it's almost like the, uh, what came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Folks say, oh, people who are queer have mental illness. And maybe, but also maybe the queerness came first, and then the harm that was done came second, and then the mental illness came third. And I was actually just reading a book, it's called um, Viral Justice by... Uh, Rue Benjamin, and she writes in it that people who, they did a study that um, of young adults, I can't remember the age exactly, but they found that young adults who face discrimination or anticipate discrimination by, you know, because of color, because of gender, because of sexuality, they have higher uh, cortisol levels throughout the entire day. Um, and so she talks about the long-term damage that that can do to our bodies of, you know, always anticipating the harm, the, you know, the disrespect, the, uh, the slights, you know, the microaggressions of, uh, everyday life. So yes, maybe, maybe queer folks do have a higher rate of mental illness, maybe, but why? That's the more important question. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I, I, I agree 100%. And I also, um, another thing I would just offer for people who would like to make laws that 
do not allow people to live their life the way they want to live. I, I would just say that, you know, would you, would you want someone of a religion other than your religion to come in and create laws that said that you could not live the way you want to live? There are church, there's even within the Christian uh, Christian community, there are so many different sects of of Christianity. I mean, what if one particular group of Christians who believed one particular way just got a some sort of a majority within, you know, your state and were able to create some law that kept you from doing something that you wanted to do? That was literally who you are. Maybe it even has to do with your your religion. But now there's a law saying that you can't do that. We shouldn't be making laws that control other people that have nothing to do with our safety or our well-being. And that's that, that's what I believe, 100%, just flat out, with no matter what else you believe about anything, I do not, I just don't see how anyone would want to create laws because you're setting that precedent that says if you can create laws against this group of people, then anybody can create laws where you happen to be in a certain group of people. Just keep that in mind. I just want to, you know, kind of remind people of that. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So, you know, I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it and she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing Uh, You can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. So Brittany, for our good nurse segment, you are the good nurse and you're a fabulous nurse. And it's so perfect because in your book, you talk about a moment where someone called you a good nurse. And I'm like, oh, this is so perfect. So (laughs) could you kind of tell everybody that little story of what happened? Because I just love that. Okay. So yes, I was on my first little, I don't want to call it a contract because I was just picking up shifts. And 
I was picking up a shift on the north side of Chicago, an area that I'm not used to being in er, because I grew up on the south side of Chicago. And it's a beautiful area, great hospital. And the thing about this the shift was that I didn't really get an orientation. It was, hey girl, there's the bathroom, there's the break room, here's your temporary badge, have fun. You know, and so I really just got thrown, like the definition of just thrown in. One of our patients had um, come in and we had a report that they had a really fast heart rate. So the, you know, I, I didn't know any of the staff. I didn't know nurses. I didn't know the doctors. The patient comes in, EMS gives me report and this physician walks in and I'm immediately just like intimidated. And they said, what's your name? And I said, my name is Brittany. I'm one of the new nurses. And they said, okay, Brittany, what's that rhythm up there? And what do we need to give? And I said, that's SVT. You want some adenosine? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the doc's like, yeah. And so I get the adenosine. We can, you know, we convert the patient. Everything was great. Patient ended up fine. And the doctor on the way out just stopped and made eye contact with me and said, it's really nice to meet you, Brittany. You're good. <laughs> right? That's like the biggest compliment I could ever yeah, receive oh, from a physician. Right? Absolutely. You're good. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. Because they recognized, he recognized that you know your stuff. Sometimes I get frustrated when people, when they talk about being a good nurse, they only talk about like holding someone's hand. <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the the softer, emotional, gentle side and the, the nurturing side of nursing that can be part of it. It's it's not for everybody. Not everybody is a handholder. Sure. But that to me is not what makes a good nurse. I, I know some people will disagree with me. But if I am in the hospital, now what, what, what would I prefer? I would have a balance. I would have somebody obviously that is very nurturing that will come in there and make me feel so warm and fuzzy and cozy and like, oh, goody, thank you for putting me <laughs> at ease. And now I understand everything and you're so sweet. And that's great. That's all fine and good. But if I can't have somebody who has that and at the same time is very knowledgeable about everything they're doing, is going to be watching every, watching my vital signs, watching my breathing, whatever it is that they're supposed you know, be, be, to be assessing. If they don't have that part of it, the other you can throw out the, the window because <laughs> I am, more, I'm going to be more as a patient and as my family, I want someone, you know, be rude if you want to, I'd rather you not, but I want the person who's, who knows their stuff. Though they know their meds, they know how they react, they know what to look for, they know signs and symptoms, they know early, early signs and symptoms, yes. I keep pressing this, they know early signs and symptoms because they get out ahead of things before they get to the point that it, they become an emergency. So that's what made you a good nurse is that not that you were standing there holding their hand and being sweet. Right. And like you said, I need you, you could be nice. That's wonderful, but you have to know what you're doing because I don't want you zipping up my body bag, right? I need you. I don't need you to kill me. I need you to keep me alive and keep me well. And so another story I tell in the book, and there's hundreds of these, right? Is there was a nurse who I came across, we were just crossing paths in the hallway and she had her hands like cupped against her chest and she had a bunch of little vials. And I'm like, what you got there? (laughs) And she said, oh, it's heparin. And I said, what you doing with all that heparin, girl? (laughs) And she said, well, there's a bunch of orders. If you look here in the MAR and she's pointing at all the PRN orders for the entire day. 
you know, if the PTT assists give this, heparin is a blood thinner for any listeners who, who aren't, you know, familiar with it. And so the nurse was misunderstanding the orders and thinking that she had to give every single one that was ordered. And I'm not kidding when I say she had at least 10 vials in her hand. And so she's she's literally going back and forth with me. Yes, I have to give all of these. And I said, if you give that much heparin, you are going to kill them. They're going to die. And so I ended up having to get the charge nurse because she, she wouldn't believe me. She's like, no, the orders are here. And I'm trying to educate her to, you know, educate her and explain to her that these orders are for later, later. And, you know, it ended up being a bigger, you know, a big issue because she didn't want, she didn't want to believe me. Like I said, she didn't want to listen. And so I ended up getting the charge nurse involved and stepping away. But I can't imagine what would have happened to that patient had I not crossed paths with that nurse in that moment. Oh my goodness. That is horrifying. That is horrifying. I don't know which is scarier, the fact that she was going to give that or the fact that she wouldn't listen to you. (laughs) Right? I don't know which is scarier either. Oh, so if someone who won't, if you won't listen to your colleague when they're stopping you and say, stop and listen to somebody who, if they're saying, you know, hey, that doesn't look right. I, I like to ask for second opinions all the time, second, third opinions, like, hey, I think I know this, but I just want to run it by you. Um, I like to do that just to feel good about what I'm doing. Double check my math on this, yeah. you know, double check the pump, make sure I've got this set right. So that, wow, I am so mortified on so many different levels. The fact of that you would actually give someone that many vials of heparin, I'm assuming it was sub Q. I think it was IV. What? Yes. Oh. The patient had a acute coronary <sighs> syndrome. So it was uh, some sort of, you know, ACS like protocol. A loading. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. They were going to do a loading dose. So she only then. needed Holy one crap. of those files. And the patient, based off the patient's weight, the patient wasn't even going to get a whole of the vial, right? They were going to get, I, I, I couldn't tell you, probably like a thousand. They were, they were a small patient, probably a thousand units, maybe two. But she was about to get. Whoa. Hundreds oh. of thousands of units of heparin IV push. And that, you know, just, it's, you got new nurses who just, th- that would maybe just doesn't even occur to them right. how inappropriate that that is, where an experienced nurse would go, there's no way. Even if that order was in there correctly, like they, right. someone accidentally put that in, you would not give that. Right. You would, as a an experienced nurse, you would look at that and go, Obviously, there's something wrong. You would contact the provider. Why is this in here like this? They would go, oh, my gosh, thank you for not giving it. (laughs) You know, that's how that conversation would go. Yes. But And I'm sure you and I have both had many of those conversations with physicians, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. You question everything, Mm -hmm. absolutely everything. I teach in the Sim Lab and the Skills Lab at Purdue on Tuesdays. And I tell every single nursing student every week, question everything. Mm-hmm. It, it'll it save lives. Yeah. And don't be intimidated by doctors who get offended because you question them. And they will. There will be some. There will be plenty who understand and they want you doing that. They want you being their eyes and ears. They want you being, a you know, that double check. But there are some who will just don't, don't question me. I'm much smarter than you are. <laughs> I have more uh, letters after my name than you do, whatever the reason is. But don't let that intimidate you. You have 
your job is literally, you will be held accountable in a court of law, civilly and possibly criminally as well, if you give medication like that and kill someone. Yep. Yeah. We know it. We know it all too well. We know it all too well. So this is the way the the book is kind of explain, you know, you've given a couple of little examples, but kind of explain to everybody what this book is about. Why'd you write it? So I started off with just having the journal and like a physical, very small journal that I kept in my little cargo pocket and my scrubs. And the sole purpose of it was to remember my passwords for all the hospitals I was going to. I started travel nursing as soon as I hit one year, I started traveling. So I'm like, oh my God, I need to remember my Epic password, my computer login. You know, some hospitals have little code, number codes that you put into the doors. So that's why I had the journal initially. And then one day I heard something that was just beyond, just beyond, I, I, it was something that I never thought I would hear uh, from any person in healthcare. And it was, you know what, I'm not even going to say what it was because you need to read the book to find out. But (laughs) something was said that I couldn't believe and I wrote it down because I didn't want to forget what was said, right? I needed to, I needed time to process what was said and I couldn't do it in that moment because I was taking care of my patients, right? So I wrote it down so that later on when I was at home and showered, I could sit and really process and sort of decompress from that whole situation. And so that became normal for me to use my journal as a way to decompress. And so things that happened that I I found memorable or things that happened that I found bizarre or, you know, injustices that I witnessed, I wanted to make sure that I recorded them. It wasn't until I want to say late 2020, maybe early 2021, that I decided I wanted to put all of these journals together. I didn't know what that would look like. And here we are, it ended up being in the form of a book. And so the book is written in in little vignettes and each chapter is a different hospital. You know, obviously details of the book have been altered to protect patient privacy, to protect privacy of these hospitals and these healthcare providers, even if they're shitty. And the vignettes are just little scenarios, just little different situations, little encounters. And so Again, it's just very digestible. There's no specific order. Uh, this, the event, the events happen. I record them, and so I'm giving you just little little bursts of something that I experience or encounters that I experience in the hospital. Nice, nice. I love it. So, you said you're a travel nurse. What all kind of nursing have you done? I have only done emergency room nursing, as far as the hospital aspect is concerned. But I also do conscious sedation, and I usually do that at Planned Parenthood in Illinois. But I have done it in Florida as well. But we all know that that's not uh, that's not current for me. <laughs> yeah, we won't. Oh boy. I won't get started. <laughs> I know. Um, so conscious sedation reminds me of what happened with Redonda Vaught. What did you? Not, not that I necessarily want your whole opinion about it or anything, sure. but what, what were you, what did you think about that when you heard that um, she had given that two milligrams of Versed and the way that whole thing kind of played out? Honestly, what I was thinking was, this is exactly what I thought. This is why I don't override medication. You know, that's what I was thinking. You know, I give that medication all the time. 
but I give it with the purpose, right, of making someone very comfortable, making someone sleepy. And so the one thought that that really just I kept replaying over and over and over, it just really solidified the fact that I do not override medication. I mm, don't. I, I won't. You know, Motrin, sorry. I need an order. I need it to be verified. I'm not overriding it. Yeah, because, you know, some people may say, oh, it's just Motrin. Why you can override that? No, because the whole point is she didn't actually pull out Versed. She pulled out Vecaronium. That's you. the problem with overriding. You can you think you're getting Motrin and who knows what you're about to give them exactly. if you override it. You know, exactly. So, yeah, definitely. I'm 100% agree with that. The whole overriding thing, it is done way, way, way too frequently oh, yeah. in hospitals all over the country. Way too common. I want, I want to say some of the time, but I'm sure it's a lot of the time, it's not an emergency, right? Mm-hmm. You're overriding something. You know, if if you're over here overriding Tesselon pearls, what are we doing? They're coughing. What are we doing? That cough mm-hmm. will not kill them. Right. But the medication that you pull thinking that you're pulling Tesselon pearls, just might. Right. Yeah, for sure. My, my one yeah. medication error that I, I really want to share, and it is in the book, mm. was very early on in my career. And it was because the first hospital that I worked at, they had chewable meclizine. And I had a patient who was dizzy at one of my hospitals that I was traveling at. And in my head, as a new nurse of only one year, I'm like, all meclizine is chewable. Great. So I go get this meclizine, I pull it, I didn't override it, I bring it to the patient, and I tell her, okay, this is chewable, go ahead and just chew it, and I'll get you some water, because I know you're going to have bits in your mouth. And she looks at it, and she's like, are you sure this is chewable? It's big. And I'm like, I'm a nurse, yes, it's chewable. (laughs) And the first bite, I was like, oh my god, that is not chewable. (laughs) I, I was like, that is... So I went to the pharmacist, I went to the chargers, I went to the doctor, had the conversation with all of them, like, I'm really sorry. I had this woman, you know, chew this pill. It's not chewable. She didn't break any teeth. No harm was done, right? It was an educational moment for me. And then when I went back in the room to confirm with the patient that it was indeed not chewable, she knew right away. And she started bursting out laughing. Oh, like she thought oh. it was, so, she was such a good sport. She oh, thought good. it was hilarious. <laughs> That was, and that's my, you know, that's my medication era story. And I, and I hope that that's as bad as it ever gets, you know? <laughs> yes, really. And we can learn from all these things. You know, I, every mistake I ever made, I tried to learn from something from it. I, you know, felt horrible, you know, would s- spend who knows how much time just lying awake at night thinking about it. Well, I, what, what I, what could have happened you know, I, I'm terrible for that. I'm terrible for beating myself up. But the thing is that if you can learn something from it and then going forward, go, oh, there's a reason for those five rights or six rights or 10, however, people <laughs> they keep so adding many to rights. it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there's a reason that they're there. It's because, you know, you've got to be diligent about checking these things. And definitely we all can get in a hurry. And when we're new, mm-hmm. we get nervous around people and make assumptions. And yeah, if we put those little um, safeguards in place, then hopefully that can help prevent things like that from happening. Is there anything else you want to tell people about your book or your advocacy? Uh, you know, I, I just hope 
I hope you all love it. I think that it's important to read, not just for nurses. And, you know, it's actually in the prologue that this, this is not a book for nurses. This is a book for all of us. I think that because our patients don't always get the opportunity to share their experiences, I think that hearing it or seeing it from the nurse's perspective could really change the way that we all view our interactions with people in our community, not just in healthcare, not just in medicine, um, but in general. I think that it can change the way that we as a community are able to see one another and come together and really better one another. Absolutely. I hear from different people that listen to the show quite often. And recently, I talked about this in one of the other episodes, I heard from a patient who is a heart transplant patient. And he said, I've never have been in the medical field. But um, having been a patient in the hospital so many times, he is fascinated by this show because we kind of talk about the behind the scenes stuff that goes on like we do, you know, you kind of use these stories as a almost a, a facilitator, I guess, to kind of just get to talk about this stuff. But um, I thought that was so neat because one of the things he said that just absolutely made me cry, it was so heartwarming, was that because of listening to the show, it helped him be a better patient. Like he had helped him to kind of be more understanding when the it seemed like they couldn't quite make it into the room as quickly as they probably should, you know, and kind of th- be thinking like, what, wonder what's going on. I wonder if they're maybe understaffed or I just love that. I really just appreciate that so much because they are the reasons, obviously we do what we do because we love our patients and we want to take care of them. And that's when you have that two way street thing going on where they appreciate you and Oh gosh, that's just the most beautiful thing in the whole world. It really it. is. And I mean, this is the the thing about like equitable healthcare in general is that we have to look beyond that first layer. We have to we have to look like you said earlier, we take care of murderers. We take care of people who beat their their spouses. You know, and so if you can't choose who you take care of. Now, don't get me wrong. I've had people that are like touching on my hair and stuff. And I have to say, Hey, get another nurse for this patient when it's doable. But otherwise we have no say in who we care for. We can't say, I only want the nice folks. I only want the Democrats, right? I only want the Republicans. We can't do that. And so we had to look past all of that and really see our patients for people and every person, regardless of who they are, where they come from, what they believe in, deserves equitable health care. They deserve empathy and compassion. And if you don't believe that, do not be a nurse. Don't. Yeah. You you can do there's so many things you can do with your nursing degree away from the bedside. It is endless the opportunities that you have. There's no reason to put yourself in between, you know, the hospital system and that patient because you are their last line of defense. You are the person that is right there with them 12 hours in their most vulnerable state. And it's just, it makes no sense to stay in that situation if you don't have the, uh, as Brittany said, the compassion, the empathy, the ability to just treat everyone the same. Just take care. I would hope that the if if you were following me around and watching me care for 
my different patients. And one of them was a murderer. One of them, you know, was someone who'd done something so atrocious and I knew what they did. And, and, you know, others are whatever, you know, they are. I would hope that you would not be able to tell if you, which one, because you can't tell that I treated any one any different than the other. I would, that's what I would hope. I know we're all human and we, we just have to fight against those tendencies to be bias and, and to, God, I have those negative feelings against people, you know, it's hard. Yeah. Like you said, we're all human, but those biases need to be checked, right? They have to be examined. And that's, that's the work that needs to be done. You know, I'm not saying to anyone, you should support murderers, right? Murdering is fine. No, but you need to understand your relationship with different types of people and understand how those different types of people make you feel. And once you really examine those biases and you're able to, to admit, right, and to own them, then you can check them. You got to check yes. them. As a team leader, I saw some things at a different level because I would have people come up to me, uh, nurses and nurse techs who would come up to me and say, this patient said this or this, it's something inappropriate. And then I would say, well, do you want me to change your assignment? See if there's some someone else who would not mind, you know, taking care of them. How do you want me to handle it? And then I would go in and try to talk to the patient. But then if you think about it, if you have, say you have a patient who makes some, you know, horrible racial remark against it to their nurse. Like, mm-hmm. Oh, I don't want, I don't want a black nurse, uh, go get me someone else. <laughs> and there's literally no one else, you know, just something ridiculous, but they, they go and they, and they're like, look, I really don't want to cater to this person, but at the same time, I am not in the mood to be dealing with this mask. I just get somebody else. Then you go get, you know, someone else who's white and, that goes in there and starts saying that person now, now, can you, as the person who you know, who you know, this person's ugly heart, can I go in there and take care of them? You cannot be just so mad at the way they just treated my friend. It would be so hard, you know, but you, can you check that? It's so, it'd be so raw, you know, for one thing, it'd be personal. It's not just a, oh, I know a story, story about something they've done. Now they literally, it's just happened. They just, uh, intended and tried to hurt someone that you care about. Yeah, that's, wow. If you can overcome that, yeah, (laughs) that's a lot. You bringing that up, it it raises a really important point, right? People who are discriminated against their entire lives, they build this tolerance almost for that type of treatment. Whereas, and so this is an example. I had that happen. I had a patient who said, can I get a white nurse? And we were busy. And I was orienting a nurse who was mostly white. And the nurse with me was enraged. And I told the patient, we're fresh out of white nurses. They're all taken, honey. We're busy. You're stuck with me. And the patient was like, all right. And we just, we resumed care as you, right? Business as usual. And because for me, therapy, right? Years of trying to learn to work through these overt aggressions from people and discrimination from people has really, you know, put me in a place where I am able to conduct myself 
in a way that they don't expect me to, right? They expect me to get upset. They expect me to yell. They expect me to be an angry black woman. And all those stereotypes, they're trying to bring those those out. And so we're raised and we're, we are taught and learned to keep it together, right? Whereas my friend, who's not used to being treated like that, right? Because she's not usually uh, running around in tandem with uh, a black nurse. You know, she's not used to someone being like, give me a white nurse because she is that white nurse. And so for her, it was a shock, you know, and it, it was different. It's something she's not used to. She doesn't have that tolerance that I have built. And so it's harder. Yeah. So now she's standing there having to deal with, with all of those emotions. It isn't fair, you know, but we have to think about it like this. I think if, you know, as women, this is a female dominated profession. We know what we have to deal with as, as women, right. (laughs) All the time, the, the things that people say, oh my goodness, I would just get, I would just, I'm like, I wish we could just put something on the wall that would just say, do not, here's some statements that is completely inappropriate. (laughs) Number one, if you are a family member, please do not say anything about how pretty your the, the patient's nurse is. About oh good oh look you've got this pretty nurse. So, no, that is inappropriate. That if you you know I don't know. There's some of the things that we have to deal. with. You guys know what I'm talking about. We get so tired of dealing with this. I hope, yeah, we get resilient and we get stronger, but we also get exhausted yes. and just absolutely over it and just just so tired of having to be strong and having to basically put up with people's crap for 12 hours for 12 hours a day right like think about an encounter on the street that happens in a matter of what 30 seconds maybe 12 hours I'm lucky to work in the ER because most of the time my patients are out of my you know out of my sight you know within a few hours but Working on the floor when these these folks are here overnight for days? For days, yes. And all the intimate things sometimes that you have to do to help people get cleaned up, help people, you know, with their toileting, uh, all of that stuff. And people can be so inappropriate and it just makes you feel icky and like, uh, like you're not a professional, you know, just you're, you're, you, you become, they're trying to victimize you is what they're trying to do in many cases, I, I believe. And, and yeah, I can try to be resilient and try to try to say I'm not going to let it bother me. But we're I have weak moments where I'm not, I'm just not feeling that strong, and I'm just like this. I'm so sick of this. I'm just so sick of the the comments and the things that people say. But that's what we have to deal with. And I'm glad that we're able to have this conversation and just kind of talk about some of the things that we. Who knows who's listening to this? But maybe. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of times I tell my husband this all the time. I'm like, oh my gosh, if you only knew the things women say, women say, uh, and their husbands are laying there in the bed as a patient, and the w- woman will make a comment about about me or about maybe a, one of the nurses that are in there with, and like, oh, look at these pretty nurses taking care. No, we don't, don't want to say that. things like that. Yep. No, nobody wants to. It's awkward. It makes you feel uncomfortable. We're professionals. We're there doing we're educated <laughs> doing our job we we just want to do the very best we can and not have to deal with stuff like that so i know you're probably trying to somehow break the tension or i don't know be funny whatever it is you're trying to do it you are not endearing yourself to us in one and I, I don't care what you think how i look it does not matter i don't care don't say anything. i don't need to know 
if you think I'm pretty or not. You're probably not going to say if you don't think. <laughs> Usually people keep that to themselves. Right. I don't need to hear it. Whatever your comment, your compliments are, I try to do my job. Exactly. Don't even want to have to deal with how to respond to you, please. Right. And I'm sure that other, right, a lot of, a lot of this kind of like crosses different disciplines. So, you know, social work or the, the, you know, crisis or psychiatric services that come down and see patients. Or, you know, I was working at a pediatric hospital and I had, you know, child life specialists that would come into the room. And so all these people have to deal with that, you know, that, that, treatment from patients and families it does feel icky like you said yeah well Brittany, thank you so much for coming on and being a guest host remind everybody where they can get your book yes you can go to blackqueernurse.co no m uh, and you can choose where to buy my book from there there's different links and i'm really excited to share it with you and of course, you know, if you want to reach out to me, you can find me at goodnursebadnurse.com. You can send me an email, tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. And I'm on social media at goodnursebadnurse. It's pretty easy to remember. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I want to remind you all before we go that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse, please. That's right.